0: That's heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. And make sure you donate before March 31st. Thank you.
1: This episode is brought to you by Nourish and Flourish, a handcrafted, independent publication taking readers on a journey from the soil to the stars. Subscribe today at nourishandflourish.site.
2: This week on Meet and 3, we're ringing in the start of our fifth season with dispatches from Portland, Oregon's biggest food festival, Feast Portland. We're bringing you words of wisdom on launching a food business from food blogs.
3: Most acquaintances from
2: high school have now tried to start a food or fashion blog in some sense and quit very quickly afterwards. To ice cream shops.
0: Every city you go to, the salt and straw is completely different than any other city.
2: We'll bring you insights and anecdotes about the business of the business. We were like, cool, we're going to do this. We're going to try to raise $75,000 and we'll see what happens. And it was like the most gut-wrenching, miserable month. Tune in to Meet and 3, HRN's weekly food news roundup, wherever you listen to podcasts.
3: Welcome to Cooking Issues, this is Dave Arnold, your host of Cooking yes. Issues, coming to you live on the Heritage Radio Network every Tuesday from, I don't know, actually, pretty damn close this time. I was here at noon. Yeah, we didn't start at noon, but I was here at noon, so we're getting better and better, people. From a Burst Pizzeria in Bushwick, Brooklyn, joined as usual with de Hammer Lopez. How you doing, Nastasia? You doing all right? Mm-hmm. Got Matthew in the booth, how you doing? Feeling great. So is not wearing headphones this week. We could talk more about, like, uh, last week's conversation about zero, my... Term zero tasking because we had someone write in who is a, a supporter of Nastasia, initially a supporter of me, supporter of Nastasia, if we have time later in the show. But I doubt we will because we've got an insane number of people with very interesting and different skills here at the program today. So I'm just going to go through who we have. Pick up your phones, call in your questions to 718 497 2128. That's 718 497 2128. First of all, we have longtime uh, friend, uh, you haven't been a guest uh, as often as I'd like, Harold McGee, the uh, grand master of uh, science as it relates to the practice of delicious things in the kitchen. Sitting next to Harold, we have Ed Cornell, the maestro of milk cult in D.C., fabulous ice cream joint, which I have not visited live, but you have sent me the ice cream. How you doing? Doing good. Thanks for having me. Yeah. Uh, then to my immediate right, we have Ariel Johnson, the chief science officer of Good Eats, uh, what are you, a professor at MIT? What the hell are you?
2: No, uh, I'm 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 a independent scholar.
3: Ooh, independent I, scholar. I,
2: I was a I was a fellow at MIT for a while.
3: Fellow, and you know the uh, noma <laughs> fermentation. It's just what you know, the the volatile characteristics of of bitters, uh, you know, and boozes as they're put through a GCMS with a sniffing thing. I mean, it's whatever you want to know about that kind of crappy. Ariel's a I good tr-
2: I try to know all the things. That you can know about flavor and chemistry and cooking.
3: You are. Hey, you know what? It's too bad that you guys agree uh, so often because, since Harold <laughs> is just finishing a <laughs> since Harold is just finishing a book on a similar subject, like a cage match would have been awesome. But I've never yeah. seen you guys. I
2: mean, they, I mean, it, it would be, I guess, like good press fodder if someone could be like the dueling books about flavor. But, um,
3: but then you, from, from you'd have to. That,
2: I'm, I'm amazed by it, and I wish I'd. You know, I'm embarrassed. I haven't written something that's good.
3: Yeah, Nastasia so. and I once met the, his, his, the guy who wrote Dueling Banjos. Wow. And he, remember when we met him? Um, Brinkman. Remember Sophie's, yeah. Sophie's dad? He, among other things, wrote Dueling Banjos. And uh, now I'm imagining, you know, while you guys are like fighting it out. Bing, 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 bing. I mean, like, as I, I said many times, like, he's done many things. He's one of those Egot weasels.
2: Oh, the, the Emmy, Grammy,
3: Oscar. Yeah, movie. and most of those are, like, huge cheats. They're just cheating. They're, like, <laughs> because, like, they write some freaking song that wins a Tony because it's in a freaking play. Then that play is made into a freaking movie, and then they win an Oscar, and they win a Grammy for the same song. I mean, but 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 but. And then if they put that sucker on TV, there's the Emmy. I mean, you did one freaking thing, and you get four freaky becoming EGOT? Ridiculous. Like, people who do it in all different things, like... I believe he won one in all different things, four different works.
2: That is actually impressive,
4: then. Yeah, yeah. But you might have to take that back if uh, they make Hustle and Flow the musical, and that way 666 Mafia can be on their way to an EGOT. Uh,
3: is that what they, what'd they, what they win their, what movie was it that they won the Oscar uh, for the Hustle best song? Hustle and Flow. To make a the flow.
4: new musical, then.
3: Well, I mean, honestly. But then
2: they'd have to do a television broadcast of the musical to also win the Emmy.
3: I mean, my favorite. Oh, did you yeah. guys see the,
2: like the the Jesus Christ Superstar live?
3: I did not. Nastasia is an enjoyer, a consumer I of think. live Alastair. television. I am not, but she wanted me to watch it. I forget why I didn't because I'm constantly singing small riffs from Jesus Christ Superstar, right, Nastasia? Uh,
2: apparently, uh... Sh- oh no, I can't remember. There's a classical composer that's like a big fan of Jesus Christ Superstar.
3: As we all know from someone that Nastasia met many years ago, you cannot trust the musical tastes of classical music. Even virtuosos have bad taste in (laughs) pop music, (laughs) right, right, Nastasia? And lastly, but certainly not leastly, uh, we have David Carp, the fruit. Now you go, fruit detective.
5: I'm a scientist specializing in fruit, journalist, and
3: grower. Now, we mentioned you on last week's program for those people who uh, tuned in because we met you in Los Angeles at the Houdini Party and at the uh, Santa Monica Farmer's Market, and we talked about Barhi grapes, uh, sorry, Barhi dates uh, last week. And I also mentioned something I thought was interesting is that you are the rare lover of both temperate and tropical fruits. You never see that.
5: I think there are a lot of people that love... Mangoes and apples. At least, certainly at the Santa Monica Farmers Market where I sell and write. From um, there are a lot of people who li- who like both. Oh yeah, um, they taste vary. I, I, yeah, I, I would not. Mm. I, I wouldn't say that that's necessarily the case. There I, are people who love lychees and who love grapes?
3: Yeah, I don't know, man. All I'm saying is is that whenever I go to visit, like, okay, so here are the places I've visited. I visited, the one in-betweeners are like the citrus people. And you hang out with the citrus people because you've done a lot of work with the citrus people trying to, oh, by the way, before we start, I'll, I'll finish this and then we'll start. So it's like, when I visited Geneva, they didn't care about fruit. Phil Line maybe a little bit. That's where we keep, that's the Noah's Ark of apples in the United States. When I visited the Brogdale, which is the, you know, Defra's Noah's Ark of apples in England, in Kent, Nastasi and I visited once, Harold and I visited once. Didn't care anything about the fruit. The various vigor of the trees was important, but not the fruit. They didn't care about it, and neither did they care about tropical fruit. Uh, Ditto most. I mean, like whenever I deal with especially apple, pear, and small fruit people, they're just grooving on the freaking plants. And you yourself told me yesterday, David, that, that the freaking Noah's Ark of small fruits in the United States in Corvallis in Oregon, right? Which should be the very freaking pinnacle of temperate fruit pomology in terms of deliciousness. They don't even grow them so they fruit. They put them in a greenhouse. They don't, even, they don't even fruit. They keep them in little pots. It's the most pathetic thing I heard. I almost cried yesterday when you told me this.
5: Well, those are just the strawberries that, that, that I was talking about. They do have pear trees, medlar trees. Um, but
3: how do you stop a pear from fruiting? I mean, that's the thing. I mean, the pear like,
5: trees are outside and they do fruit well i mean um, the, the strawberries are grown indoors and they don't
3: and do most of those people groove on the pears or are they sitting there oh they do very much so Really? Yeah. All right. all right.
5: they are real connoisseurs after a fashion you got to get to know them
3: uh, uh, you visit a tropical fruit place and they go completely bonkers for the fruit they're all about the fruit you know what's his name campbell at the fairchild fruit all day the guy just talks about fruit I didn't hear him say one thing about a tree. Not one. I didn't hear him say anything about leaves. Vigor. He was like, this fruit, best. All he cared about was fruit. I think the trees are secondary to him. This is my kind of mental breakdown of like the maybe only a dozen or so. You're the only person I know, I've met, who cares about like kind of the whole, like the kind of broad spectrum of fruits in a deep way. How about that?
5: Well, there's a reason for that. There are wine writers who care about a broad range of, of wine There are very few people who have written about fruit professionally for their career, like really just me for the general public interpreting it. Why is that? There are no ads, or when there were ads in newspaper food sections, um, there were very rarely that many ads, specifically from farmers or or from from producers. And I guess the editors figured there was no reason why people would want to know about fruit, so nobody specialized in it. Hmm. Mm. And?
4: Not
2: not enough fruit service journalism.
4: <laughs> oh. Or you have to you have to write a racy fruit stone fruit novel like The Orchid Thief of Fruit.
5: Huh. It's been done. Look at <laughs> and, and right here as you would expect in Brooklyn, track down the lemon about a man's obsession with the, that very fruit.
3: Why would someone write a book about growing lemons from Brooklyn? Is it just like the unattainable? I mean, this is not like. It's the about le- a man who fell in love with a lemon and not in a platonic sense. I've seen some racy lemons in my time. Uh, remember the lemon we found, Estes? Uh-huh. Yeah, yeah, real racy. I yeah. bet you did. Yeah, I've seen I've seen little boy lemons and little girl lemons. I've seen all the racinesses of lemons. But why? So, what size is this lemon? Is this a Kafka-esque kind of a situation, or is it a normal-sized or like relatively large Eureka lemon? I think it's a normal-sized lemon. Yeah. 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 What, well, if you're from California, what's a normal size lemon to you? Like, show me your hands. Okay. No, it's. Uh, All
5: right. Like the, they're, they range from this size to yeah. like this size, but yeah. when you get that big, if you're a farmer, you're losing money because the market doesn't want something that's so freaking huge. That's like the size of a small football. Okay. Um, you of, want something yeah. that's like the size of, I don't know, a large plum to a small navel orange. All right.
3: And, And uh, by the way, anyone listening right now who wants to go in on the chat room, uh, David is looking for a good old-fashioned Citron market. I said that my old neighborhood in the Lower East Side used to be, around Sukkot time, used to be like Citron Central. Like there would literally be tables set out on the street with all the various wares and various different kind of qualities and prices of unblemishness. But uh, no longer. My neighborhood is now merely a shell of its former orthodox self, and so you'd have to, like, go somewhere. So if someone can give us a good location before the show's over, uh, I'd appreciate it. Now, one thing I'm going to have you do before I go into general questions. my uh, The people who listen to this podcast are the kind of people that are going to smuggle seeds, fruits, spices into this country illegally because that's just the kind of people that listen so, give them your pitch for how detrimental that can be. Don't do it.
5: That is responsible for billions of dollars worth of damage a year, and an increased load of pesticides on our environment as farmers deal with invasive, introduced pests and diseases. That it's not just a threat to the farmers; it's a threat to anybody that eats. I guess that's everybody, right? I mean, who, who produces? Uh, farmers produce grain, fruits, vegetables. Um, epidemiologists tell me that it's increasingly looking like every possible disease from around the world that could exist in a given growing area in the United States soon will exist, which is the ultimate nightmare for farmers and for anybody that wants to eat good, clean, reasonably priced food. Why? Because it's a huge economic burden. It's a huge medical burden on the population of the United States to have to spray, to have to spend time and money exterminating pests that were brought in just so casually um, because somebody thinks that, oh, I won't hurt anybody. You can't necessarily see that tiny little bug, that little mite that might be the vector of a deadly disease that you don't even know about. Don't do it. And if not for that reason, because if you get
3: caught doing it, people do get put in jail and fined big time. So uh, one of those things greening is an is an imported uh, disease, right or no?
5: Yes, it's a citrus a bacterial disease affecting citrus that's been responsible for the devastation of the citrus crop in Florida off 75% in the
3: last 15 years. Shouldn't they have picked a scarier name? I mean, greening sounds like One Lung
5: Bing, yellow dragon disease. Is, is that scary enough for yeah, you?
3: Baby. <laughs> yeah, baby. That's a name. Now I don't
5: want it. Give me that one again. One Lung Bing, HLB for short.
3: <laughs> I hate that I don't want any of that in my citrus yeah but does it actually kill the tree or does it just reduce the marketability of the fruit both it certainly does
5: kill the tree yeah,
3: yeah. alright uh, alright so should we answer some questions Nastasia mm-hmm. any, any, uh, any, any questions for our, for our panel Matt
1: um, not as of yes nor do you have a market recommendation
3: People, you're disappointing me. Okay, Alex Cole writes in. He's, a, he's an MD candidate at, uh, at the UM Miller School of Medicine. Uh, he'd like you to know. Uh, horse conch. You guys ever eat horse conch? Are you familiar with conch? Yes. All right. You ever, you lived in the Northeast for a while, Harold. You ever, uh, in your, in Massachusetts, in fact, you ever yes. go out there to the Cape and forage for whelks? Uh, no. Ah. I didn't. I did have many, <laughs> many times. Uh, so these are just a much bigger variety. What about you, Ariel? Are you a whelk and/or conch person?
2: Um, I'll, I'll eat them, but I haven't had the pleasure of foraging for them.
3: That, you don't strike me because if you don't like scallops, you're not going to, you're not like a conch person to so stop. what about you, Ed? Conchs? Uh,
4: no, no on conchs. Really?
3: Good word, though, right? Conch. <laughs> anyway, so when you say conch, there are, are a wide variety of actually. Not even the same, not just this, not the same species, not the same genus uh, of uh, gastropod, you know, uh, foot stomach things that go around. Now, what you were asked, oh, I should read the question first. Uh, thanks for your time and effort in producing my favorite podcast. Well, thanks for listening. Glad somebody does. Uh, you have a great sense of humor and unique knowledge. This is my first time writing, and I have a few questions. I've caught and cleaned some giant horse conk, the bright orange type from Key Biscayne, Florida. I was wondering if you think this is safe to eat. Yes. Uh, How can I determine what is safe to catch and eat as I explore the waters in Miami? Do you have any cooking recommendations for this conch? I'm an enthusiastic home cook with access to uh, a basic kitchen, grill, smoker, immersion circulator, dehydrator, Uh, and a pressure cooker. All right. So first of all, before I go any further, the the best kind of and safest, i.e. conservative reference that you can get is, it's on the internets. Fish and Fishery Products Hazards and Control Guidance, 4th edition, August 2019 from the FDA.gov. And if you search horse, horse, uh, horse conch or conch in general, they list like uh, two, two, uh, two genuses of, uh, of, of conch varieties that are eaten uh, and kind of what, what might be wrong with them. So the biggest problem uh, that you're going to get from one, which you're not going to get where you come from, is uh, paralytic shellfish poisoning, but that's, You would know if the water that you went in and harvested your conch from, because you're harvesting them, if there was a high concentration of that stuff in the water. So it's not going to be a problem. I was not able to find any, like, parasites, even though the horse conch, unlike the queen conch, which is, like, the one that's being overfished right now and, like, is, you know, it's problematic because of overharvesting, but delicious and people love it. Even uh, that one is is an herbivore from my research, and the one you eat eats... Animals, it's a carn- carnivorous thing. But even so, I wasn't able to find, like, uh, Anisakis worm references or, or a- anything. I wasn't able to find uh, any sort of parasite reference to it whatsoever. So usually in something like that, either it's going to straight out poison you, right, or it's going to have uh, some sort of a parasite. Now, parasites are usually frozen out. Now, I looked at, uh, I looked at a couple people's preparation for it, including Miss Florida... Miss Florida 2014 or something like that. She has a blog on cooking things, including, including conch, uh, horse conch. And she, uh, the, what she does, which doesn't strike me, I mean, I get why she's doing it, right? Is she puts the whole damn thing in a plastic bag in the freezer, right? And then f- for like two, three days. Now this, to me, there's two things you're doing here. You're killing it like, you know, like the modernist cuisine folks do with their oysters, killing it. And then freezing it through, freezing it through is going to be an antiparasitic treatment. Right? Because that's the anti-parasitic treatment par excellence, you know, for pork and whatnot. Then she keeps it in the bag and thaws it in, like, water in the sink. But because the conch is is so big... Gulf Coast USA. Oh, so you're not even Florida. (laughs) (laughs) Listen, the the Gulf Coast is more than just Florida, though. There's more than just Florida in the Gulf Coast. So, like, that includes what? Louisiana? Alabama? Mississippi. Mississippi?
2: Texas? Part of Texas. Yeah,
3: so, I mean... What's more impressive, Miss Florida or Miss Gulf Coast? I mean, if you were impressed by such things, what would be more impressive? Gulf Coast. Oh, there you go, okay. So, uh, So anyways, so then she thaws it for, like, hours and hours because it's so damn big, and then, of course, it pops out because it's dead. Oh, she has a nifty trick, though, which I think you could use no matter what. She drills a hole in, like, in the top section, in the third spiral up, because that's the air section where the thing is, and she's and she says her words and apparently everyone else is on the internet because I did google it right uh release the suction so you could get the conch out in one piece then you you clean off all of the gut you know the the kind of slimy gut parts, you cut off the uh the uh, is it still called an operculum on that thing Harold I think so yeah yeah yeah, the, yeah. The, and the tough foot part then you you skin it like you would a uh, freaking uh a gooey duck, right? And then you got the nice meat, which you slice thin, and then apparently everyone serves ceviche style in a salad for conch salad. That's like, that's the thing. I have seen other people where they do the light boil, like I would do for a gooey duck, a very light kill boil that will also loosen the skin and make it easier to peel. That's what I do on the gooey duck. Uh, Maybe I'm just a weasel. I don't know. And then I saw this other guy who's like... Yeah, I just break the shell with the back of a cleaver. <laughs> so, he, so he, like, covers it with a towel, and he, like, he hits it, he hits it, he goes, I'm, what I'm doing is I'm going around the hemisphere of the top going clack, clack, clack. You can see this guy on the internet. It's clack clack, 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 breaking it, and it gets it apart. Then he, like, twists the unfrozen, which I think is going to be better in this case. Although freezing will tenderize. Conk is conch is a tough meat, and freezing it and actually will tenderize it. And the best way to tenderize something through freeze thawing is to create large crystals. And the best way to create large crystals is to freeze slowly and thaw slowly. However, you'll get uh, a lot of what is called in the trade drip loss. And I also don't know how many kind of, as long as it stays around zero, I'm I'm a little worried about how long it takes to freeze. I don't think it's going to lose freshness. It just seems a weak way to do it. You're going to get a lot of drip loss, but maybe it's the best texture wise, because the people who cook it, Or par cook it, they beat the ever loving piss out of it to tenderize it before they serve it, right? And Miss Gulf Coast 19 or Miss Gulf Coast 2014, I don't think she was pounding on that stuff before she made the salad. No, no. Yeah, she she was skilled skilled at drilling it. uh, I thought. Anyway, uh, so the question for you then is, you can go traditional Caribbean style. Remember, it's a different conch from the queen conch conch and. I don't know whether it's going to taste sweeter or less sweet. Make sure you clean off all the goop. When I eat whelks in uh, in uh, in Cape Cod, I eat the whole damn thing. I just boil them, rip them out, grab the operculum, shove the whole, you know maybe peel a little bit of the stuff off, and they can have a little bit of that, yeah, that grew up at the bottom of the ocean taste. You know what I'm <laughs> saying? Uh, whereas I think if you go through the trouble cleaning it all, it should be a relatively clean taste. But I don't know how sweet a horse conch is versus a queen conch. I've had, what you buy when you buy conch at a restaurant is queen conch, typically, right? Uh, but, and this is, again, a different genus uh, and uh, has a different diet. So, I don't know, maybe eating snails and crabs makes it taste better. I mean, I, I don't know. I like snails and crabs more than I like, that's not true. I like a lot of seaweed. I really do. I mean, Whatever. Uh, was that an okay answer, Stas? Mm-hmm. All right. Uh, his second question. Similarly, I can catch iguana, an invasive species in Miami, but I haven't found much more than a few basic rep- recipes uh, or advice on catching and eating them with a cursory web search. Any tips on determining if it is safe to eat? Yes, it is safe to eat. However... Uh iguanas, I'm gonna, this is a crap paper. I'm going read, to read you the thing. Any tips on cooking them? I've never cooked one, but I can still talk about it even with no knowledge. That's what I'm here to do. Uh, I have successfully caught and cooked a few uh, fish and lobster from the area, so I'm hoping I can develop a number of recipes with ingredients only from foraging and fishing to have an authentic South Florida dinner for myself and classmates October 19th. Okay. Uh, the issue with... Iguanas and reptiles in general are that's going to be parasites, right? That's the issue is going to be parasites. So here is a garbage paper. The biological risks of eating reptiles, February 10th, 2010. The source, the Spanish Foundation for Science and Technology summary. Reptiles are bred in captivity primarily for their skins, but some restaurants and population groups also want them for their meat. A study shows that eating these animals can have side effects that call into question the wisdom of eating this delicacy. And then they mention all things that are fixed by normal cooking procedures. (laughs) Or freezing for parasite procedures. All normal stuff. They're like, may contain trichinosis. So may pork. You know what I mean? Like, although not anymore. But you know what I mean? And then a list of things that ain't nobody ever heard of but will be killed by cooking. For instance, I'm going to see if any of you know any of these. Pentosomiasis. Nope. Uh, you know, guess what? You're not going to get it, especially if you cook the stuff. This one I, pr- I appreciate. Nathosomiasis, like with GN, like gnashing of teeth. You don't want it, but you're not going to get it. <laughs> Sparganosis. No. And these are all theoretical. These are all theoretical things. They also reptiles have mites on their skin and ticks. So,
2: so they didn't like get some samples of reptile meat and then culture up At, these. Not to the best
3: pathogens. of my, not to the best of my thing. The clearest microbiological risk comes from the possible uh, presence of pathogenic bacteria, especially Salmonella, Sh- Shigella, and E. coli, and Yersinia. Okay, like all the other food we eat. <laughs> it's like people are such jokers, like. How could anyone in their right mind make this as a recommendation? No, you, you better hold off. It's got all the same hazards as all the other meat that you eat. So
4: it's, it's not going to be sushi-grade iguana? is what you're
3: saying? Well, no. Because of the salmonella. However, all the rest of the stuff you could freeze kill. Like all the pathogens, you, can, you could freeze kill them. Yeah, yeah. Uh, so I was mad about that. Uh, And then I read a lot about – I've seen some people, they whole spit roast the iguana. Apparently, iguana is a little bit of a pain in the butt to skin until it's been cooked, right? And a lot of the – there are whole spit-roasted iguanas that people eat. I just don't think that's going to be my jam. (laughs) I mean, I like whole spit-roasted cooey, you know, the guinea pigs.
6: Yeah.
3: But a whole roasted iguana, I just don't know that there's going to be enough meat there. I'm also not a frog leg guy just because of the quantity of meat to bone ratio. I mean, I don't mind bones and I like the taste of frog's legs, but I, when someone says you're gonna have frog's legs, I'm not like, oh yeah! You know what I mean? I'm like, okay. You know what I'm saying? See the difference? Yeah. So anyway, what do you go, any of you guys huge frog legs people? Yeah, fried. Fried, but, yeah, but like still, do you it's like fried. all those bones? You just don't, you don't care? I don't
4: know if they're fried enough. Have I used stuff <laughs> Okay.
3: Okay, but
6: would you seek them out? No. Harold? It depends on how much meat they have on them. I mean, some, some are really nice, and you know they've, they've exercised a lot or something. Uh, but others are really scrawny, and they're not worth it.
3: You lived in France. Did they actually eat frog, le- frog legs uh, to a large degree where you were?
6: No, no. We, I was in duck country. Uh, much yeah. Much
3: better. Oh, speaking of, later we're going to get to this. There's a, a place called the Cajun Kitchen that is selling alligator meat on the internet. And it says, alligator loins, five pounds. And put up a picture of a duck breast. <laughs> I'm like I'm not stupid I know what a duck breast looks like and sure shoot and I'd rather have a duck breast than an alligator tail but because duck breast is like I mean come on duck breast it's, I mean it's up there um, yeah. above many meats okay uh, any other any frog's legs ideas over here on this side of the I
2: mean just some things you have to prepare yourself for like doing some manual labor
3: No, oh, yeah you... you know other thing about frog's legs that I don't enjoy is just the inefficiency of use to whole animal ratio. Mm-hmm. You know what I mean? It, to me it's almost, it's not as bad as uh, shark fin, but it's like pretty close. You know what I mean? They, you cut the leg off, the two legs, and then you throw the rest of the body away. I've seen it like time and time again when people are selling frog's legs. Just cut the legs off, throw the body mm-hmm. away. Like still living body. It's just like, I just, I mean, eh, you know what I'm saying? Yeah, I mean, like, look, if you lived in, like, a lakey, swampy area and you wanted to go out at night with your little frog fork and go frogging, you know what I mean, because you were going to eat it the next day and your place is overrun with frogs anyway, yeah, sure, I get it. You know what I mean? But, like, the practice of raising these relatively large animals, specifically just to throw away the, the greatest mass of their body into a trash can full of like things going bad with no legs on. It just, uh, I don't get it. I really don't. Uh, anyway, back to iguanas. So the problem with iguanas, uh, aside from the relative boniness, apparently they, they can taste very bad or not. So there was a, there was a lady also from Florida who won some sort of contest for making iguana carnitas. And she, I think just, threw the stuff in a slow cooker and then picked it apart and then and then did it uh, and served it. She didn't even taste it, which is I don't even know why they wrote the article about this person. She didn't even taste it. Her 11-year-old tasted it. But she said something very interesting. She said the smell was terrible and that she wouldn't cook it again because it smelled up her kitchen. And a lot of the traditional recipes that I uh, looked at – perform a traditional technique for many game birds going all the way back to Roman times and before, and that is a quick boil in water before the roast. Uh, And so I'm guessing that there might be some, let's say, off-putting stuff in the skin or areas around there. So I would say do the old school, which is a relatively quick boil, throw that water away, skin it after it's been parboiled, then shred her up, fry the meat. And I've seen people eat it that way on the internets and they were happy. And what do you think? What do you, what do you think about those old Roman techniques? Parboiling. In a the recipes look terrible because it looks like they're just boiling the piss out of everything and then overcooking the hell out of it. And I ran some tests. If you're dealing with like gamier meats, I can see it. Even like, you know, mo- a lot of modern kind of hunting cooking manuals have the kind of pre-poach out, uh, and a lot of people who um, are doing uh, bone stocks now do, like, the, the low bring-up skim to get rid of that initial kind of bleep.
2: Yeah, I mean, it's sort of like a more a- assertive pre-soak. I mean, it's yeah. so like brains or sweetbreads you usually, usually. You
3: still eat pre-soak. brains?
2: Um, I have. I mean, like... I, mean, I don't, like, seek out cow's brains, but... We were doing, like, we were, like,
3: doing stuff with lamb's brains in, in Copenhagen. Yeah, I don't need brains anymore. It's just, 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 too much is going to go wrong. It's, it's just a matter of time. Like, <laughs> like <laughs> it's just a matter of time before we, before we all go kind of scrapey, Kreutzfeld, mad cow, Kreutz, like, Jakob. some sort of, yeah, yeah Jakob's Kreisfeld variant, some sort of wasting disease. You know what I mean? Like, it's really just a matter of time, for sure. Yeah, yeah. But they're so creamy. I mean, yeah, I mean, I like brains. You know, I just don't, I don't eat them anymore. I still eat marrow, and I guess that probably also has similar issues, huh? I mean, marrow's good, right? <laughs> if you, Harold, if someone said to you, you have to give up either marrow or brains, what would you give up?
6: I'd give up marrow.
3: Whoa! Yeah. <laughs> because marrow is, um,
6: it it just doesn't have the... The, the delicacy, the range of flavors, the, I mean, the uh, marrow can so easily just kind of fall apart into fat. Yeah. Um, yeah, so.
4: But then are you giving up all stocks and all related marrow, marrow-related products?
6: Oh,
3: that's a different, now that's a different story, but. Okay, so then let's have this discussion. How much, in other words, marrow being primarily a fat fat-based fat vehicle, how much do you think the stock is actually benefiting from the marrow itself? And how much is it just that the marrow happens to be there? No, I think, I think its contribution is probably
6: pretty minimal. Um, but if giving up marrow meant having to give up anything cooked with bones, like stocks, then, then I wouldn't make that trade.
3: I see, I see, I see. Huh. What about you guys? You guys, brain aficionados over here. Well, you already said you like them, but I
2: like them. I just don't eat them that often. Yeah, I definitely eat marrow more often than I eat brains.
3: Do you know what? Like marrow on toast. I mean, marrow on toast, like crusty toast, marrow. Yeah. Real good. That that yeah. preparation alone better than any brain preparation I've ever had. You love what? Do you? How do you like your brains with eggs? Uh,
6: uh no. Uh, I mean, just you know, uh,
3: slowly roasted in brown butter. With toast or something on the side? I mean... Uh, I mean toast is good. Yeah. Everyone, like, yeah. mean, like, some people can't have toast. I don't know anyone that doesn't like it. You know? Yeah. I told you, didn't I tell you I was in, when I was in Iceland a couple of weeks ago, they served me the split slams head without the brain in it? They pre-removed yes. the brain. Yeah. They didn't leave yeah. it up to me to make that choice. And I have to say, although theoretically I'm angry at them for it, secretly I'm happy because I didn't then have to not eat something. <laughs> yes. <laughs> Yeah, right? Yeah. All right. Uh, okay. So, oh, I didn't finish the, oh, I did finish the question. Right?
1: We have a question from the chat.
3: All right, chat, what do you got? R.
1: Lee 32 asks, any thoughts on using preparative liquid chromatography for flavor isolation? Any chefs doing this?
3: Ariel?
2: Um, yeah, I don't know of any chefs doing this. Um, I mean, it's possible that, like, the cooking lab in in Bellevue has one. Um, Yeah, I mean, definitely it's something I've thought about a lot and been interested in trying. Like, the big roadblock would be solvents. Um, Most of the solvents that are really good for doing liquid chromatography are super nasty. So um, I would avoid getting anywhere near, like hexane or acetonitrile uh, if you're a chef in the kitchen unless you have a lot of
3: knowledge about how to remove it well. So pot smokers often do extraction with very toxic things and then have you consume them. Is it just because they're doing something illegal anyway and they assume <laughs> it's unhealthy? Or, it, like, what are, what are your thoughts well, on that? Well, I don't
2: that? know. I mean, now with um, with like legal cannabis in so many states, uh, there are a lot of state-level regulations about uh, removing and testing for solvents, I believe. Um, so, like, you know, your buddy down the block, maybe he has some method for, like, removing all the hexane, but, um, uh, certainly if you go to, like, Colorado or Massachusetts, they are going, or they should
3: be (laughs) removing and testing for these things. Um. I wanted to, I wanted to do, like solvent because i can't like have the supercriticals become reasonably priced yet can i get a supercritical co2 extractor for that won't blow up and kill my crew oh
2: to buy so i know definitely people are getting more into supercritical extraction which is a totally different process it's clean liquid chromatography i was gonna do butane yeah so with liquid chromatography you have basically tiny 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 beads that are like sticky to organic molecules and you like load a column of these with like your plant material, and you push organic solvent through, and all the different flavor and other molecules stick to the solids at different rates and um, come out in a separated way. Uh, whereas supercritical extraction, you use carbon dioxide under like extreme pressure, um, so that actually acts as a like semi-liquid, semi-gaseous solvent, and you can tune the polarity of it based on, like, the pressure and the temperature.
3: Right, but I mean, I don't think the chromatography, I mean, just a first blush, I don't think it's going to work, because the yield's going to, yeah, the yield's going to be way too low, right? But if you're talking about stuff that has bad solvents, I mean, for someone... Well, you're going
2: to, I mean, for, like, liquid chromatography, you have to use, like, a huge amount of solvent to get a separation.
3: Right. Yeah,
2: because the stuff you're trying to get off moves at a fraction of the rate of the stuff you're pouring on, so you'd be using, like, liters and liters and liters to get...
3: Tiny to get I mean, tiny you amounts, maybe
2: only need tiny amounts if you're just trying to get like you know, uh, natural eugenol from cloves. Uh,
3: but, but I mean, just buy that crap. I mean, the, the well, fa- this is
2: that, so. This is the thing. If you're talking about chromatographic separations, most of the stuff you could buy from a flavor house is isolated that way. So, like, if you're talking about getting molecules, uh, you know. Uh, methyl chavicol from basil from uh, ferment each is not going to be a different molecule than the one that you would get by doing that chromatography yourself right so it's but, just for like bragging points
3: yes yeah, in other words like that's why I hooked more on the idea of solvents because solvents is something that I w- wanted to use and don't because of the kind of you're using solvents well
2: and even I mean like the the flavor and fragrance industry is moving as much as possible towards like so-called green solvents now too so they're trying to reduce the use of like hexane and other organic solvents and moving towards like water and microwaves and supercritical extraction
3: right but has anyone so back to my other question has anyone made a reasonably priced safe supercritical co2 Uh, i
2: mean like twenty thousand dollars not
3: reasonable for me (laughs) Call me when you sell it for I mean, five grand. Yeah,
2: let, let, if anyone out there knows of one cheaper than that, let us know. But when I've been looking into it, that's the general
3: range i think I've seen. if it was five grand, a lot of people would buy it. I mean, at 20 grand, a pot producer could buy it. Because presumably they're producing pot. You know what I mean? <laughs> yeah,
2: no, that would pay for itself if you're
3: isolating yeah, THC. At, at my bar, I, you know, <laughs> hey, I want to spend 20 grand. Why? Because flavor real fresh real pure (laughs) you know what I mean like yeah yeah. yeah, I don't don't see it
1: this episode is brought to you by nourish and flourish a handcrafted independent publication taking readers on a journey from the soil to the stars nourish and flourish showcases thought-provoking stories from around the world and stunning photography Each issue explores emerging trends in food, nutrition, recipes, soil health, technology, regenerative agriculture, travel, and more. Volume 1 of Nourish and Flourish includes features on the Svalbard Global Seed Bank, the International Symposium on Bread, and Ancient Hawaiian Aquaculture. Are you interested in eating healthier and learning more about where your food comes from, and living a more connected life? Subscribe today at nourishandflourish.site. For $29.99, you'll receive three issues. That's 38% off the retail price. Nourish and Flourish, connecting readers with the people and stories that make a difference in living a more balanced, healthier life. Subscribe today or find a retailer near you at nourishandflourish.site.
3: Aaron writes in, uh, they met us at the Delmonico's dinner, Anastasia. Uh Thanks for your enthusiasm. I'm well on my way to convincing my wife that we should book a trip to the Fruit and Spice Park in Florida. Dave, I'm glad you're here for this. We have a little research to do to pick the best season to visit. So what are your thoughts on, I know you said you haven't been there in a number of years, but what, what are your thoughts on the best season in South, in Holmes, it's in Homestead, right? Yes. In Homestead, Florida, to visit for the widest range of cool And how do you book a trip there whereby someone will walk around with you and actually allow you to taste things?
5: You know, I haven't been there for a number of years, so I'm not sure whether... I know they do have festivals held there from time to time. Um, I would go at the same time as the Fairchild Tropical Botanical Garden Mango Festival, um, which is usually held in the middle of July. Not from the point of view of climate, the most salubrious time to visit Florida. Nevertheless, um, you'll be able to taste mangoes probably lychees, longan. It's a pretty good time. Plus, it's in the middle of summer, which is convenient for a lot of people to travel.
3: Like with some of the other stuff that I know that you're not a fan of, I don't know what the bearing season is like. They have a lot of different varieties of jabotacaba there. Are they ever bearing? What are they? I'm not. I'm
5: not sure. We, in California, I think things are probably different. So I can't. Yeah, I can't they have comment.
3: some nice mace. I don't know if that's seasonal. They have a lot of interesting aromatic leaves. They have star fruits. I don't. But the thing is, they have such a wide range. Do you remember when we went, Nastasia? Yeah. Where are we in? Was we might have gone once during uh, the mango season time, and they also had jackfruits. But it's not like you can eat one of those off the tree anyway. You gotta. Have you ever, has any of you listening ever gotten jackfruit latex on your freaking clothes? Damn. I, I, I've i still not gotten it out of the, it wasn't a jack, it's jackfruit, right, that has the vicious latex that you have to cut and let skim over after it hits the ground. Am I correct on this? I think, yes. Damn, yeah. It's nasty. It does not come out of your clothes. Is there a, an industrial use for that latex? I don't, I don't know.
5: I know that Italian-American teenagers used to, tattoo themselves with fig sap which is sort of in, I believe in the, in the, in the same family huh. uh, they hey. would inscribe their girlfriend's names on their arms in
3: fig sap how long does that last infinitely I don't think so oh, right. it's like it's like the henna so it's not a big commitment no. it's like saying I like you <laughs> yeah it's like you and me for at least two weeks right <laughs> uh, I can't call the show is live but I have two questions We will be in New Orleans in two weeks. Do you have any awesome recommendations? Food and drink are both equally enjoyable for us. Any of you guys been to New Orleans more recently than I have? I went to Dookie Chase's, which is great. Get the shrimp Clemenceau. Get the shrimp Clemenceau. Now, back when Leah Chase was alive, she published several recipes for shrimp Clemenceau. I have made this recipe, and it does not taste (laughs) like the shrimp Clemenceau they serve at Dookie Chase's. Which leads me to believe she was holding something back in that recipe. Unless, and this is possible, Gulf shrimp are the best tasting shrimp that God has ever created. And no offense, Gulf, or Miss Gulf 2014, <laughs> I don't think so. You know what I mean? I don't think so. I think they're adding some other stuff, but try their shrimp, So Make sure you have a lot of other things to soak up all of the butter because you're going to want to consume... The star of that isn't the, necessarily the potatoes or the shrimp. It's the butter. <laughs> just like, nom, 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 butter, butter. And then, uh, and you know, have their fried chicken definitely. But also a block from there is Willie Mae's chicken, which is one of the original traditional, like, Louisiana fried chicken joints. Well worth uh, a visit. If you're going to do muffalettas, uh, just, you need to have at least two different styles of muffaletta. You need to have both a hot and a cold Go, I know it's tourist trap. Go to the central grocery, get the traditional muffaletta. I like it. Some people do. Is it you that don't like them, Nastasia? Do you think they're too bready? It's not me. Not you? Anyway, and go to Napoleon House to get the hot one, and while you're at Napoleon House, get you a Sazerac or a Pim's Cup just because it's traditional there. They ruined it like five, six years ago when they put air conditioning in. It used to just be a hot box all, all year round, but it's a good old place. And then if you want to get out to a different neighborhoods, go to, uh, I don't know, go to Couchon or any one of those nice uh, places out there. Right? All right. Uh, Also, do you have any experience with low temp alligator? No. No. Uh, It's a pretty crappy meat, right? Maybe not worth bringing home a giant chunk of frozen gator. Okay, so Nastasia Lopez, Piper Christensen, uh, and who else was on that trip with you? Grace. And Piper's Smith. Yeah. We're in a motorhome in Florida, maybe eight years ago. Yeah, they drove a motorhome all around Florida with a package of frozen gator, and then we had to cook it in the motorhome kitchen, and it has ruined me on gator. First of all, the frozen gator in a plastic thing is like not like a gator steak. It's like just like shredded nasty gator meat that's been frozen and like kind of weepy thawed, and it was just like it was unpleasant. Mm-hmm. I've had fried gator plenty of times at like tourist establishments, and you know what it tastes like? Fried. Chicken. It tastes like fried just tastes like fried. You know what I mean? Yeah. It's fried. People are like, it's firm. It's, uh, it's like monkfish. No, it's not. I've had a lot of monkfish. Uh, I don't find it bad. In other words, the stuff that Piper bought was garb. It was like just garbage. Just, like, but I've had it be fine. But if you locked me in a room and said, what does alligator taste like? I'd say, I don't know. I don't know. I, don't, I have no idea. You know what I mean? Uh, have, you, have you guys had good or bad gator experiences?
4: Yeah, I've had pretty good roasted gator, but it's always like been in a rice dish. It's never been like, like in a jambalaya with gator, it's never been like a gator steak, like gator tail steak or anything like that.
3: Right, and so the jambalaya is so highly flavored, what the but hell? There's a,
4: but there's a texture in there, and I mean, it's not bad, but it's,
3: it's like chicken-ish. Yeah, was, the, was, the, was the base, a, a, Like, did they use a gator stock for liquid? No. Right. If you can't make a stock out of it, how good could it be? You know what I mean? Like chicken stock tastes like chicken stock. Turkey stock tastes like turkey stock, right? I've even made squab stock in 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 bags because it doesn't take as much bones to make a stock in bags, right? Beef stock good. Veal stock good. Pork stock can be good if you get rid of some of the initial garbage stuff in it.
2: Would it, would frog stock be a good use of uh, frog leg waste?
3: You know, when I think of frog bodies and aroma, all I can think of is (laughs) formalin-cured frogs, you know, from dissection tables. Or, like, the unpleasant experience I had of harvesting gastrocnemus muscles from frogs for my art projects where I was chloroforming and pithing frogs uh, way back in the day. So uh, I'm having a tough time thinking about the stock. But I would guess the problem with... Frogs also is that, is that almost all of their musculature is in their legs, and then the inside of their bodies is mainly guts.
2: Right. You know what I mean? People, people aren't like getting excited over gut stock.
3: Yeah, gut stock. Bone broth. Is not, yes, gut stock. What?
2: Bone broth. Yes, but
3: yeah, not bone gut broth. Stock which?
2: Okay, broth. you want to have
3: that discussion? Like, no,
2: no. I, I it was a joke about nomenclature. I know, a, but okay. <laughs> not an incitement.
3: All right, all right. Uh, oh, it's here, just stock. Here you go. Uh, no, Well, there's a new liquid nitrogen ice cream shop in our neighborhood. They have a very cool uh, liquid nitrogen setup. What's your thoughts on liquid nitrogen ice cream shops?
4: It's um, it's not a bad... So, for people who want to do it, I think it's a great business. Um, it can be a great product because obviously you're, you're, you're chilling ice cream super fast. It's probably going to have great texture. Um, but it just depends on where they're getting their ice cream base. If they're getting just run-of-the-mill you know not great ice cream base then you know it's it's probably not gonna um, taste that great, even the texture might be awesome and um It is because the cost of running that shop labor-wise, they can't churn through customers really fast. They're probably not going to get the best ice cream base. But maybe they are. I can't speak. But, like, if you know if the Spectral's nice and, like, a lot of my friends, their kids like it, so, you know, go check it out. I always say, like, if there's something you want to check out, you should go check it out.
3: What kind of freezer do you use?
4: So we have a Carbaggiani LB502.
3: What size is the 502? uh,
4: Usually we do, like, a 15-quart batch uh, for our batches. And a lot of people call into the show asking where to look for equipment. And there's a website, it's an aggregate called Turnkey Parlor. And they refurbish equipment because, like, there's always ice cream places and yogurt places going out of the business everywhere all over the United States. And they at least provide, like, a three- to six-month warranty on most of the stuff that they send back out into the world. And it's a pretty good resource for people who—because people are always asking, like, where to meet yeah, yeah. up quick. And Turnkey Parlor, um, they have a website, and they, they're a pretty good source because they they, they refurb.
3: So, how, like, how much would, like—I don't know if you look, but how much is, like, an old LB100?
4: I mean, they don't make the LB100 anymore. It's not actually that much cheaper than a 502. Really? So, yeah, because the countertop LB100, it's nice because it's, like, a 220, um, but and it's, like, a three-to-five-quart batch. I've used a three-quart, maybe. Yeah, and it's air-cooled. And it's air-cooled, but it's still, like, seven-to-nine grand. And Whoa. You can, get a nice, you can get a nice 502. I have a theory about why the 502s are so cheap. Yeah. Um, Coldstone Cold the chain they w- were running all of their businesses on 502s for like a decade and a bunch of them all went out of business and so there are all these fi- refurb 502s on the market and they're 12 grand 10 10 grand 12 grand depending on where you get it refurbed and you know, they last 20, 30 years. Like it's like a stove. I mean, it's a reverse. Style. Like, there's there's, there's nothing to break except your belt. And, like, I've replaced the motor on ours before. And, I mean, they just, they just run. And the
3: refrigeration system is pretty robust? Yeah,
4: it's 404. And, you know, if you need to get it recharged, it's not super cheap. It's not super expensive either.
3: And the front doesn't break like the LB100s used to break no, all, all the time?
4: It's all stainless. So it doesn't have the plastic door. It has got a stainless door. Ah.
3: And now, the reason I asked, what's the batch time on that?
4: Oh, I mean, it's super quick. I mean, depending, I mean, as low as three minutes and as high as, like, nine minutes for a 15-core batch. All
3: right, listen very carefully, people. Theoretically, liquid nitrogen is going to give you smaller crystal size. If you have a machine that can do a batch of ice cream in three to, what do you say, eight?
4: Three to nine. Three three to to nine
3: minutes, your tongue is not an accurate enough (laughs) texture-measuring machine to tell the difference in ice crystal size uh, at that freeze rate in a batch freezer. It it just isn't.
4: The liquid nitrogen, it's a spectacle. It's a nice... People like seeing it, you know, when they go into stores, you know,
3: it's... What I don't like is the people who are bad at it who get chunky pieces that are over-frozen. It's not that they're bad. It's just, like, they need to be tempered out all to one temperature. You know what I'm saying? Mm -hmm. I find, more often than not, I would prefer someone make ice cream, draw it at the correct temperature... And then have it in a dipper case at the correct temperature for serving, and then serve it to me. I find that that is when ice cream tastes the best. Am I wrong about this?
4: No, you're completely right. I mean, it's like serving. If if, but it's it's another like place where service can fall is where what serving temperature is.
3: People don't spend enough on their dipper cases.
4: Uh, no, they don't keep track of what's happening in the store. So if you know if if it's if there's a big open window, it'll it'll pop the temperature of the dipping, dipping case up like five ten degrees, or they'll have it running like too cold through part of the day, or like it won't, they'll keep everything in a hardening cabinet overnight, pull it out for service, but the first like three hours of service, everything's too cold.
3: I'm assuming that the, most of the dipping case is like, you get that big thermal mass from underneath the, like you have like inserts, right? Mm -hmm. And so like, are they separately refrigerating the top and bottom so that the
4: no, it's it's one, it's usually one refrigeration coil that wraps around the whole thing and they function really well because they're top open and uh, the air replacement when you open the top isn't as much as like a side open freezer. And so and they have a lot of mass in there which helps it keep cool as well. But usually those those fillers are just air. It's it's not um there's not like large fillers that take up all the space.
3: Huh. All right. Uh, this actually wasn't what they were asking about. I just, as an aside. Uh, I'm sure the folks that work at the LN ice cream shop uh, will eventually be convinced that I deserve to play around with some of their liquid nitrogen. All I have to do is buy enough ice cream to win them over, right? Uh, if I were to nitro-muddle drinks in their shop, first of all, they're not going to let you nitro-muddle drinks they're, in their
4: if, shop. They're, if, they're, if they have any brains, they will not let you touch anything in their <laughs> shop.
3: Now, they might sell you, you know, some you know. liquid nitrogen to take home in a thermos. But anyway. Uh, how long would the herbs last? Assuming I muddled, mixed with booze, and then went home to make the drinks, could the herb-infused liquor last long enough for tasty cocktails in the evening? No. So, I mean, it depends. So, uh... Oh, by the way, uh, Nastassia, for your records. Uh, big fan, uh, 36, male, no kids, patient wife who puts up with me spending too much money on cooking equipment. Yep. Aaron. All right. Um, okay. So the, here. Here's what it is. Uh, certain herbs are bulletproof, like parsley. Parsley is fine. Parsley doesn't oxidize. Certain herbs, like mint, minutes after you nitro muddle them, they start turning swampy. Something like Thai basil's in the middle. A Thai basil daiquiri batch that's been nitro muddled. So the, the best thing is, if you're going to save it, is what's called kind of blender muddling, where you freeze. It's a combination. It's nitro blender. So don't just blender it. It gets oxidized. But like freeze like a relatively large quantity of the herb in liquid nitrogen. Drain and reserve the liquid nitrogen if you don't have unlimited supplies like I do. Put it into the Vita Prep, Pulverize it frozen. And if it starts thawing out, add a little more liquid nitrogen. And then add uh, the liquor and the rest of it. Briefly pulse to mimic shaking, which is where a lot of the color transfer takes place. Is after you pulverize it in the shaking is when you actually get a lot of the color and flavor transfer. Strain so that the herb particles aren't in the drink uh, as you're storing it. And that's the way you can keep the batch the longest, and it can go anywhere from hours for a parsley to about 45 minutes for a Thai basil to about zero for mint. In my opinion, mint is the most fragile. It's like mint and limes are God laughing at us for trying to preserve things, you know what I mean? Because they just don't want to, they don't want to stay, you know? Um... I don't have time to read this right now, Nastasya, because I got. But I'm gonna. I'll read. I'll read Nick's thing. I'm on zero tasking next week when okay. we're. gonna go back from oh having zillions of guests to, having probably no guests. Uh, but uh, I thought it was interesting. Someone asked on the, uh, Twitter whether I was gonna do classics in the field this week after I said that we had this all-star guest, and I, I I will because I have one that you know maybe David you could talk about. Ready, ready. It's time for classics in the field. Yeah. All right. Today we're gonna to be talking about agricultural extensions, the land grant, uh, the Morrill Act, land grant colleges, and uh, a little thing called the Geneva Agricultural Extension, U.P. Hedrick, and the Fruits of New York. Uh, now, for those of you that don't know this, you have a, let's say, a relatively exhaustive uh, collection on uh, fruit, correct? Right, about 2,000 books. Yeah, yeah, which is a lot. As they say, a yes. lot, that's a lot. Uh, so. Uh, when I first met you, I mentioned that one of my prized possessions is I have almost the complete fruits of New York. Now, for those of you that don't know what I'm talking about, you're in a little bit of luck. All of them have been put on the uh, Internet. They've been all been digitized. So in the 1860s, right, actually before, in the 1850s, they tried to get uh, the U.S. government, federal government, to give land to the states, so the states could then uh, sell it and make money, but they needed to establish what's called land-grant colleges to uh, promulgate uh, knowledge to kind of average, average people, farmers, because this is during the time when agriculture and, in fact, all working professions were becoming more uh, investigated by science. It was more of an idea of education built around trades and practices, right? Right. So Buchanan, being the dumb bastard that he was as a president, uh, did not sign the uh, Land Grant, uh, the the Morrill Act, and when Abraham Lincoln came into power, he did. It was one of the things that he did during the Civil War, uh, and then after most most of it took place. Michigan, I think, was the first Land Grant uh, college that was built, but Cornell not that far behind. Uh, Now... These were funded by the states, which means that each individual state did their did their own uh, thing. And in 1905, the agricultural extension, a guy named S. A. Beach, who was the second head of the horticultural uh, thing there at at uh, in Geneva, New York, was where it was. Came out with a two-volume set called *The Apples of New York*. Now, for those of you that know anything about New York City, uh, New York State, we know apples. We we do good apples here. A lot of stuff we don't do that well, but apples, it's we're good. We're good. And back then, better, right? You know what I mean? Uh, So it was true or false, like still is, one of the top two or three references on apples that's ever been published. There have
5: been dozens of books, so I'd have to think. Just what it is that we're talking about, but certainly it's indispensable. It's a linchpin of the lineup of anybody's Pomology collection. And it's gorgeous. It is. It's a beautiful set.
3: Now, it's two volumes, and it's relatively uh, small compared to the format of, not not in length, because it's two volumes, but in physical dimensions. It's length and width is more of a normal book size, not a coffee table book, but It had, for the time, very advanced color plate work and has some of the prettiest pictures in it of any pomological text of that era. Would you agree? I certainly would, yeah. Yeah. And now, S.A. Beach, like, I don't know. He wasn't in it for the long haul. He leaves after 1905, and in comes a guy named U.P. Hedrick. You want to talk a little bit about U.P. Hedrick? Ulysses Prentice
5: Hedrick, who died, I think he was in his 90s, in 1951 was one of the greatest pomologists, so much so that one of the orchards in which Andy Mariani and I grow stone fruit in Morgan Hill, California, is named the Hedrick Orchard, our largest orchard, in fact. And he was head of the the agricultural station in in Geneva for many years, including for six, I believe, of those large, the the Apples of New York was an octavo-sized volume, if that means anything to book lovers out there, the um, the main New York Fruits of New York series was a qu- quarto size. They're huge. They're maybe the size of a Manhattan phone book and then some. Yeah, no one remembers what a phone book looks like. Just you oh. and me. <laughs> <Okay.
3: laughs> and Harold. Yeah, but yes. Yeah, and yeah. they're
5: like I don't know, 600 pages each. There's the cherries, there's the peaches, there's the grapes. Um, small the, fruit. The, 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 the small fruit of New York, the pears of New York. Yeah, yeah, I've yeah, got yeah. them all. Yeah. Um, and but the rarest were the, they were followed in, the the, the, the fruits series was, started with 1905 with the apples, most of the rest of them were, uh, the plums, we didn't mention the plums, were from like 1910 to 1922 or something like yes. that. And then the there was four volumes of the vegetables of New York, which are much, much rarer to find. There are the beans, the corn, the peas, and the
3: cucurbits, which you have in your hand. Which I have in my hand, which is, I think, one of the prettiest. Why don't you pass this around and look, find some choice cucurbits. And first of all, uh, I just love the word cucurbit. Or I don't know even know how it's pronounced. That's how I call it because I'm singing in my head like old, you know, reggae songs. Cucurbit, 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 <laughs> taking over. Anyway, so like the uh, point is, is that the pictures in this are awesome. And it's also one of those things where they grouped it botanically and not by eating. So cucumbers and melons and pumpkins, all of the cucurbits are handled in the cucurbits of New York. Um, one of the problems with this series, well, it's amazing. They had to go back to get funding from the state legislature. And these documents were put out when they were put out as part of the annual report of the Agricultural Station. And so they kept on getting into arguments about how much mu- you So the, the beach volume, they were produced in a limited number and distributed to people who needed them, like farmers and stakeholders and libraries in New York State. The beach ones were smaller. The S.A. Beach Apples in New York came in two volumes and were smaller. But when U.P. Hedrick came on, he started making, as you say, these giant volumes that were quite expensive to produce and I believe were relatively controversial in the state legislature that were spending all this money on the production of these things. So by the time U.P. Hedrick was retiring in the in the mid-20s, or he wasn't doing that anymore in mid-20s. His understudy, who I think was chafing a little bit, Tapley, right? He is the main author on half of the vegetables of New York, but they, had re- they hadn't reduced their production value in terms of the pictures, but they'd stopped hard binding them. They were, they were cardboard bound and they came in these kind of awesome envelopes. The hardest one of these to find is, I believe, it's either peas or beans. I forget which one is easy. If you go to Cornell's website right now, right now, and you go to the Agricultural Extension, they still sell for only, I think, $50, new old stock copies of the corn of New York, the sweet corn of New York, which is also a good find. So you can go buy original from the supplier a copy of one of the vegetables of New York. The rest of the stuff, uh, if you get a perfect, if you were going to collect these, which I recommend, because by the way, not only are the pictures awesome, but, like, he, they go through, at the time, what was an exhaustive uh, discussion of where the fruit came from and how it grows and tastes as grown in New York State. So especially for a New York person, it's, like, really cool to have. It's very expensive to buy a complete collection. I suggest getting individual books as they, as they, as they come up. And
5: these vegetables are, are printed on glossy, higher-quality paper, in fact. They're very high-quality... But I, what I was told and I can't remember who told me this was many years ago from somebody actually at the, the, the station was that they ran out of money during the de- Depression. They, their vegetables w- were printed in the 1930s and ultimately the state legislature said all right, enough of that and the series came to an end.
3: Yeah, I mean it's kind of a shame they were going to keep I think uh, in the first one of the Vegetables of New York they write down all of the things that they planned on writing and then yeah they only made, made four of them. There is a book not written, I think, by the Ag Extension, but funded by the same kind of thing called the Wildflowers of New York. That's an interesting document, but since you can't eat wildflowers, I just don't care about them. I do own well, it. I
2: mean, you can eat
3: wildflowers. I, I mean, some of them, right? Yeah. Like what?
2: What? which wildflowers? Well, like tiger lilies, like-
3: but is that considered a wildflower or is that an invasive species?
2: Beach roses.
3: Can- oh, the hips. Yeah, but this is literally no, 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 the no, flowers. The, the,
2: literally the flowers. How do they taste? Delicious. Really? Yeah. I mean, like, a tiny bit bitter, but they have this, like, amazing, like, perfumed rose
5: quality. It's a nitrile level those? Yeah. Oh, yeah. There are cookbooks of edible flowers, so, yes, there are plenty of... Dandelions,
3: d- lavender. Dandelions, okay, okay. Dandelion wine, I've had, I've enjoyed. I have just put dandelions in my mouth and gone, homp hop, hop, and I'm not like, you know what? I want to eat that again.
2: That's,
3: and most <laughs> the, flower the, the, the books... The
2: Dave Arnold edibility criteria. Yeah.
3: Look, it's like mushroom people, like, they rate it, is it poisonous, is it edible, is it choice? I'm going to go ahead and say not choice. <laughs> you know what so I mean? Like
4: Cattails, too.
3: Cattails? But you consider that a flower? Oh,
4: no, but we're talking about edible wild.
3: Yeah, but you eat the shoots and root. This is just flowers. It's not like, this is not like Yule Gibbons. Like, this is wildflowers, like flowers. And I've never, I mean, I like nasturtiums, I guess. There you go. What other flowers you guys, like, loved? Chai flowers. Garlic flowers. Good, right? Yeah. Uh, Borage. Good. Right. But, like, of the flowers that don't come from an otherwise known herb, like, what's a flower where you're like, oh, yeah, mustard flower's good. Elderflower. Elderflower. Hmm. What's the deal with elderflower, anyway? Like, is it true that, like, that that you can poison yourself off that stuff or that there's some sort of the berries are poison? What is it? Is it?
2: Uh, with elderberries, I'm not going to get this completely right, but, like, be... Don't ever eat underripe ones. Don't eat the twigs. And, like, be very careful
3: about drinking the juice. I was going to bring my Mayapple in for all you guys <laughs> to taste. Speaking of per- perhaps poisonous Perhaps don't fruit. even drink
2: the juice. There's both, like, a an alkaloid and a cyanide issue with elderberries. But, but not elderflowers. So
6: uh, elder, elder... I thought there was an elderberry wine.
2: No, there is, but uh, there have... Yeah, elderberry wine, when you ferment it, is fine. Some varieties of elderberry juice are fine. There are also like public health records of people being poisoned from improperly prepared elderberry it, juice.
3: Is it that they're actually picking the wrong stuff?
2: No, it's the right stuff, but either the wrong time, or they're getting twigs in it and the wood is not good
3: for you oh it's the wood and the underripe berries so uh i know we're running out of uh, in fact we've run out of time but uh, uh one thing harold and i separately when we were at harvard uh a couple of weeks ago whatever it was uh mentioned i was like we passed by a yew tree bush you know they don't turn into trees here you know a yew bush which uh for those of you that don't know what's the genus that's taxodium what is it Anyway, yeah. U, Tax, Y E Texas. I think it's Texas. Yeah. yeah. So it has a, a very, um, has a very, it's not technically, It's a, what, what is it when it's not a fruit? An arrow? What is it? The, it's not a, it's a conifer. Arrow, Is that what they're called? Uh, a little berry-like thing that's not actually a berry because it can't be a berry because it's not on an angiosperm. Anyways, the red thing <laughs> on the U. And you can tell when you look at it that it's a U because it's like a cup-shaped, I'm just going to call it a berry, people. Please don't get mad at me. It's like a cup shaped berry with a seed on the. uh, Okay, again, don't get mad. With a seed on the inside, right? Okay. And you've all seen these if you've been near an ornamental hedge in the Northeast, all right? Now, deadly poisonous. The seeds, deadly. Like, literally, like, how many seeds, Harold? Like, couple. Couple seeds. No idea, but. Deadly. not, Not many. Not many. Like, it's one of those things where you have to warn your kids. I mean, I don't know whether it's oleander poisonous, but it's, like, real poisonous, right? The fruit, not poisonous. And so I'd lived, like, you know, whatever, 47, 48 years without ever tasting one, even though I grew up around them all the time. Harold, you also, and we talked about it, and you had also just recently tasted it.
6: Yeah, in in Cambridge that that week. Yeah, and so, and what are your thoughts? Uh to me, didn't taste like much.
3: Ding. There you go. Edible, not choice. Don't bother. (laughs) It's not worth the risk of ingesting the seeds. The haws, on the other hand. Oh, my God. So uh, I constantly make fun of the Harvard students every time I go because there's all these cool plants to forage from. And Harold and I stayed at a place called the Sheraton Commander near where, uh, what's his name, George Washington took command of uh, the troops during the Revolutionary War. Uh, Anyway, so... And as we walk to class, every year for the past, I don't know, nine years, Stas, you tried it. I think you like it, too. We passed this haw tree, and this year, the haws are always kind of okay. They're real seedy, but they're, they're, they're high acid, punched, almost like a rose hippie taste, wouldn't you say? But, yeah. like, juicier? Yeah. 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 Uh, this year, the haws were out of this world fantastic. Yeah. Amazing. I, the best haw... On the tr- on that tree Big I, and juicy
6: and aromatic and yeah, and, yeah. and hanging right there I mean often in the past we've had to jump to you know get a couple of not so very good ones. These were right there
3: yeah and I noticed and I was very happy to see this that on the in, the, the science building is where the lectures happen It's called the science building <laughs> nice name. Anyway so you go into it and right outside of it are a bunch of staghorn sumacs, a bunch. Ooh. And every year, I would go eat some of the staghorn sumac on my way in, be chewing on it, go in, and casually remark to anyone that would listen, why don't you idiots use this staghorn sumac to make drinks? And this year, somebody did. When I walked there, they had harvested all of the low-hanging staghorn uh, sumac things. And so, if if any of you live in a place that has... Sumax. It's a little late. It's late in the year now. It's too late. Next year. Uh, you know, when they get nice and red, please harvest them. Please, like, boil them, you know, into a tea. Make tea with it. Serve it as a you, alcoholic or non-alcoholic. You know, it's an amazing color. It's an amazing kind of asc- acidic uh, taste. It grows everywhere. It's free, and everyone has to do their part to get rid of the idea that it's poisonous. Because everyone thinks of the word poison sumac. They're unrelated. Do you know how many sumac trees? I've seen innumerable, like, biblically innumerable innumerable sumacs, specifically where I am mostly staghorn, in my life. I can count on zero fingers. I would require zero hands to count the number of poison sumac trees, bushes, whatever they are, in the northeast that I've ever seen. And if it's got a red berry, it's not poison sumac. All of those, all of those toxic, whatever they're, toxidendrine, whatever in the hell those, Eurysteryol, like doped poison oak, poison sumac. No one's like, I'm afraid of an oak tree because of poison oak. <laughs> but sumac, because no one's living with sumacs, they freak out. If it's got a white berry, stay the hell away from it. If it's got a red berry, please harvest it and turn it into tea. What do you guys, got, anything, got any last? uh
1: before you guys head out, I just want to get uh, one plug-in for the Heritage Gala. Uh, it's on Monday, November 11th. And if you go to heritageradionetwork.org slash gala, you can take advantage of early bird tickets, which are only on sale for the next uh, little over a week. So, yeah, you guys should hang out. Dave and Stassi were there last uh, year, and it was a good time. We, we got to get off there. air. Oh,
3: man. All right, well, thanks, everyone, for coming in. Hope you guys had a good time. I did.
2: Definitely. Definitely. Thank yeah. you for Thank
3: you. Us. Yeah. Cooking Issues Cooking Issues is powered by Simplecast.